Let me pray. We need prayer because um, often various parts of the Old Testament particularly seem quite distant and far from us culturally. Uh, Tonight is one of those passages, so let's ask the Spirit for help. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would speak to us now through your word. Uh, Father, we thank you that we have your word, Lord. Thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to us. Uh, Father, we do feel that sometimes uh, what is written in your word uh, seems like it belongs to a place so far away and distant from our experience. Uh, Lord, help us uh, to understand the human dimension in uh, words that are culturally far away but reflective of who we are as people and who you are as God. Uh, Help us to learn more about you and how good you are in this word, and please direct our hearts and our thoughts and our hopes uh, to the Lord Jesus as we reflect on him uh, in light of your word tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, it ain't pretty when relationships turn messy. Uh, One messy relationship that has been splashed uh, all over the news this past week, as many of you know, will, uh, is the apparent rift uh, that has come out between Prince Harry and Meghan and the rest of the royal family. Uh, things blew up at the start of last week when Harry and Meghan announced that they would be stepping down from their roles as senior royals uh, to live financially independent lives, free from some of those royal responsibilities. Now, according to the media, their decision sent shockwaves through the other members of the royal family. Papers reported that the Queen was cut out of the decision and was feeling both furious and dismayed. It ain't pretty when relationships turn messy. Now, I don't know if you noticed uh, this as you uh, heard the passage read out, Deuteronomy chapter 25, But messy relationships seem to be a bit of a theme in this chapter we're looking at tonight. In the first 12 verses of this chapter, Moses outlines three hypothetical cases of relational mess that Israel can expect to face in the Promised Land. And it seems as though each one is more shocking than the one before. In fact, I was thinking that together some of these... uh, cases of relational mess in Deuteronomy 25 could really provide enough content to fill an episode of Dr. Phil. Um, You can imagine how it would be introduced tonight on the Dr. Phil show. Um, Two neighbours in a desperate dispute. No, lost those ones. Two neighbours in a desperate dispute. A family torn apart by a stubborn brother-in-law. And finally, things get out of control when a protective wife takes matters into her own hands. Now, while I'm sure Dr. Phil would have something to say in each of these cases, we actually have someone better than Dr. Phil. Tonight, we are going to listen as God speaks into these relationally messy situations. And I think there are really two big principles that can be gleaned from what God says in these cases. Love's response to messy relationships will pursue justice, not excessive vengeance, and secondly, be selfless, not selfish. So once we've thought about those two big principles that come out of these cases, then we'll consider how the good news of Jesus gives us every reason to trust God and live his way 
amidst our relational mess. So first, when a relationship turns messy, love will pursue justice, not excessive vengeance. Uh, You see, when we've been deeply hurt by someone, it's natural that we should want the offending party to be punished in some way, to be held to account, and if need be, to compensate us for any loss. And there's something very right about this desire for justice. God is a God of justice. But the danger comes when our desire for justice kind of gets warped by the sheer intensity of our feelings of hatred and rage and bitterness towards the other person. See, it's then that we're at risk of moving from appropriate justice, which God desires, to a lust for excessive vengeance, which God forbids. I remember seeing an incident of road rage just outside the Bible college I attend. A few years ago, a driver had been cut off by another driver, uh, and he had become so enraged by what had just happened that at the next set of lights where they both stopped, the driver who had been cut off got out of his car, ran over to the other driver, and just started beating him up. It was kind of like a, you cut me off, now I have the right to pummel you. See, the human heart has a sick capacity for excessive vengeance. There's a bit of that guy in all of us. And there are two cases of Israelite neighbors disputing in this chapter. In both cases, God is saying, pursue justice, yes, but do not rationalize, do not justify or give, or give in to excessive vengeance. So let's consider the first case in verses 1 to 4. Read it with me. When people have a dispute, they are to take it to court and the judges will decide the case, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. If the guilty person deserves to be beaten, the judge shall make them lie down and have them flogged in his presence with the number of lashes the crime deserves. But the judge must not impose more than 40 lashes. If the guilty party is flogged more than that, your fellow Israelite will be degraded in your eyes. See, did you notice the emphasis on upholding justice and at the same time restraining our natural desire for excessive vengeance? The offended party is actually not to take matters into their own hands. See, they're too filled with emotion. They're, too, uh, they're likely to overreact. Their dispute must go to the courts and judges are to decide the matter. And if it is the case that the judges find a crime in one of the parties, well, the judges are not to underreact or overreact, but give the person the punishment they deserve and by so doing uphold justice. But notice verse 3, even if just one extra lash is given, justice has been corrupted and the guilty person has actually now been sinned against himself and degraded. See, when relationships get messy, God calls his people to pursue justice and be on guard against excessive vengeance. And I actually think the same point is being made in the second and more extreme case of two disputing Israelites. In verse 11, we are presented with another hypothetical relationship that has become so messy that it's descended in what appears to be physical violence. For whatever reason, two blokes have had a gut full of each other and it's now on for young and old, as they say. 
But notice what happens next in the scenario in verse 11. The wife of one of these blokes, she sees what's happening in the front yard and in the heat of the moment decides to take matters into her own hands, quite literally. She seizes the other bloke by his private parts and we assume things come to an end. Now, while we might sort of have a little bit of a slight chuckle at verse 11, the giggling stops by verse 12, doesn't it? You see, there we read how she is to be punished for her actions. Verse 12, you shall cut off her hand, show her no pity. Now, I have to say, I wrestled with this verse uh, for quite some time this week. Because part of me was thinking, what is the big issue here? I mean, I'll probably be teaching my three daughters that if some bloke's trying to attack them later in life, you go for the groin. And isn't it a noble thing that a wife would want to rescue her husband in such circumstances? I mean, we understand it's a bit of a cheap shot, but still. Well, after thinking and reading and, and praying, here's what I think is going on in this verse. Uh, it's important to understand that the primary issue here is not the fact that this woman would defend her husband, that's actually noble, but the tactics that she is prepared to use. See, the text is suggesting here that something is particularly wrong about her seizing this guy by his private parts. Now, some commentators suggest that it was because the action was uh, just shameless and immodest. Uh, and while that may be part of it, I think the context uh, surrounding these verses suggests it may have more to do with the horror of a man having his name blotted out from Israel because he can no longer bear children. Uh, that's certainly the issue that dominates verses 5 to 10, as we'll see shortly particularly verse 6 is up there. And at the end of the chapter, we read that having your name blotted out from under heaven is spoken of in such terrible terms of judgment that it's actually reserved for Israel's enemies, the Amalekites. You see, in deliberately attacking this guy's private parts, this woman was willing to possibly put an end to his entire family line. And that's actually no small thing in God's sight. God had given uh, the promised land to his people to enjoy. It was his gift to them, and they were to enjoy it. They were to pass it on to their children and their children and their children and the generations to come after that. You see, this law reminds us that in personal conflict, the ends don't justify the means. Though this woman acted in, with good intentions towards her husband, she had acted with excessive vengeance towards the other man and his family. Now that explanation may not answer all our questions we have, but I think it gives us a better framework to think about the extreme penalty imposed here. So when confronted with the messy nature of conflict and hostility in our relationships, God's word is calling us to respond with love by pursuing justice, not excessive vengeance. Now, we may not find ourselves needing to take each other to court, and I'd be very surprised if we started wrestling with each other, though I suppose it could happen. Um, but our, relation, our relationships can get messy, can't they? 
boyfriend who betrays you, a workmate who becomes jealous of you, a housemate that just can't stand you. In fact, let's think about what we are prone to do when a housemate relationship turns messy. Uh, because we're often angry and hurt by various things in this moment, it's easy to justify vengeful and petty behavior. The passive-aggressive messages on WhatsApp, the silent treatment when you're both in the kitchen, deliberately leaving dirty dishes in the sink, closing the front door extra hard when you come home late at night, hoping that you might wake them up. You see, this passage is a rebuke to excessive and personal vengeance when our relationships turn messy. But this passage is also a rebuke to ignoring real issues of sin. See, in the housemate example, there are likely to be a number of real issues that need to be addressed in a just way. Now, maybe that means having a house meeting instead of communicating through WhatsApp. Maybe it means asking a trusted and neutral person to come in and mediate that meeting and help establish where sin has occurred how it should be dealt with justly and to establish some boundaries and helpful expectations going forward. See, part of love's response to messy relationships is to pursue justice, not excessive vengeance. Well, second, when a relationship gets messy or complicated, God wants our response towards the other person to be selfless, not selfish. See, even in our messy relationships, God wants us to be asking, how can I do good to this person? And Jesus makes this principle crystal clear in the New Testament, doesn't he, when he tells us to love even our enemies. Now, I suspect that if you're like me, selfless love doesn't come naturally to you. Uh, what's natural for me is to walk in our front door and just start telling Ruth all about my day. It's actually unnatural for me and takes effort to walk in my door and then ask Ruth how her day was, considering her before me. Selfless love is difficult, even in the best of circumstances. Well, if Israel was to have any hope of loving their neighbor selflessly when things get big and messy, they actually had to get used to loving selflessly in the small and ordinary things of life. And I think that's part of the reason why God commands his people to be selfless in their love, even to their family ox. See that in verse 4. It's just sitting there, seemingly kind of out of place. Verse 4, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out grain. Now the self-centered farmer will muzzle his ox to stop it eating up some of the grain while it's in the threshing process hoping to gain a bit more for himself, but it's actually the selfless farmer who will show compassion to his ox and let the animal freely eat during its work and trust in God's provision. Now, at first glance, as I said, verse 4 seems a little bit out of place. But I think it actually reminds us that selfless love is to permeate every area of our life even the small and ordinary things. You see, God actually cares about how we speak to one of those telemarketers that call us, 
selfless love. God actually cares about how we show selfless love to other drivers on the road. And it seems here that God actually cares about the way we show selfless love even to the animals in our care. It's actually wrong to treat animals in our care with cruelty and neglect. Now, the Welsh Revival was a period of time between 1904 and 1905 when tens of thousands of Welsh citizens were turning to Jesus and being saved. Now, one major demographic of those saved were the coal miners of South Wales. And one of the fascinating impacts of the gospel on these miners and their community was seen in their treatment of their pit ponies, the little ponies that helped take, cart backwards and, uh, take coal backwards and forwards. You see, prior to coming to Christ, these miners had treated these ponies harshly, beating them, swearing at them to get them going. But following their salvation, they were convicted that God wanted them to treat these animals with respect. So they stopped swearing at them. They stopped beating them. And the interesting effect of this, however, was that the ponies were totally confused and actually stopped working because they had no idea what was going on, um, which I kind of think is hilarious. But saved people are changed people. And that change will show itself in selfless love that extends even to animals. So let's have a look at the kind of selfless love called for in the big and messy, messy family drama of verses 5 to 10. I'm having a few issues with the projector, but we'll see if my little slideshow... No, it's gone. That's annoying. Okay, verses 5 to 6 set the scene for us. Two brothers and their wives are living together on the same property. Now, we assume that each brother has been given a share of their land uh, by their father. Now, in the sad case that one of the brothers dies, the wife of the deceased brother should not be cast out of her property in order to go and find another husband to marry, but instead the brother of her deceased husband is told to take her as his wife to fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law. I had little cartoons that made this really easy to understand. It might be in Google Drive. We'll see. Um, now, all of this seems foreign to us because we're so far removed from Israel's time and culture. Uh, we take for granted things like Social Security and Centrelink. We struggle to understand the importance of inheritance and family name for these people. Uh, in marrying his brother's widow, the man would provide an ongoing context of security and stability for this vulnerable woman. But more importantly, uh, he provides her with the opportunity to bear a son who will carry on the name of his dead brother so that name will not be blotted out from Israel. There it is. There they are. That's going to help us. And that guy's dead. <laughs> Okay, so we know where we're up to here. Okay, but what if the brother of the deceased man wants to marry, doesn't want to marry his brother's widow? 
See, what happens then? And this was actually a real possibility, uh, not simply because a lot of men would have thought it was weird to marry your sister-in-law. Sorry, Em. Um, again, this practice would not have been thought of as weird in their time and culture. Uh, some men uh, may have wanted to avoid marrying in this instance because there was inheritance to be gained if the widow remained childless. And we actually know this from another law in Numbers 27 that takes up the issue of inheritance and childlessness. See, let's look at what that law in Numbers 27 says. Just read the first part. Say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. And on it goes through the line of succession. Now, you can almost hear the cogs turning in this guy's mind. Why would I marry her? I mean, if she has a child, they'll get my dead brother's inheritance. But if she remains childless, well, I'm next in line for it. It's a clear choice for this guy. Will I be selfish or will I be selfless? And so it's easy to see how this scenario can quickly become a complete relational mess. See, imagine how devastated this widow would be at the thought that the name of her husband would be blotted out from Israel forever. I mean, it's such a serious matter that in, uh, in this case, the widow was told to take that matter to the elders of the town and say in verse 7, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. But then, we then see in verse 8 that the elders are told to summon the man, try to persuade him to do what is right by this young widow and her dead husband. But if he still refuses to marry her, he is to be shamed publicly in condemnation of his selfishness. The widow herself shall go up to him in the presence of the elders take off one of his sandals and spit on his face and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Now again, some of these traditions are foreign to us, uh, but we can still see what's going on here, I think. In the midst of this relational mess, the man is encouraged to act selflessly for the sake of his dead brother and his sister-in-law. And he should, shouldn't he? He himself was a recipient of God's loving salvation from Egypt. Saved people should be changed people. But instead, in this scenario, this guy's acting selfishly. You see, just imagine if this guy had listened to the elders when they came and confronted him and acted selflessly. Thinking beyond his own gain, there would have been peace between him and his sister-in-law. His brother's name would not have been blotted out from Israel's history, and he would have done what is right in God's eyes. But you see, in acting selfishly, the relational chasm between him and his sister-in-law becomes wider and wider. At this point, he has her literal spit on his face. 
His brother's name is now dust, and he has done what is wrong in God's eyes. And here's the irony, right? This guy allows his brother's name to become dust, but in doing so, in his own name becomes mud, forever shamed. Now, we are very removed culturally from this particular case law, but the principle remains true for us. In complex and messy relationships, God wants us to think beyond ourselves to the good of the other. What might this look like for us? Uh, If we're thinking of complex family arrangements, where could we show selfless love? Well, there's a whole host of places, aren't there? Maybe it will mean taking an anxious cousin or niece or nephew from the country, taking them into your place when they move here for uni. Maybe it will, be mean, it will mean spending time with or, or helping to provide for a parent or a grandparent who suffers with dementia and is kind of just simply hard work. And maybe it's as simple as continuing to pray for the salvation and repentance of a family member who has deeply betrayed you in some way. See, selfless love doesn't come easy. Like the man in this law, it will probably demand much from us. We may well have to give up our comfort, or part of it, but it will honour the God who sent his Son for us. It will honour our Saviour, who is willing to leave the glories of heaven to enter our world and die on a cross for sinners. As Philippians 2 says, nope, we're out. I'll go to that passage. As Philippians 2 says, each of you do nothing, from verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So what is the loving response when our relationships get messy and complicated? Well, Deuteronomy 25 is showing us that we are to pursue justice, not excessive vengeance, and be selfless, not selfish. Okay, we're done. The slides have tapped out completely, like the guy. Now, I suspect most of us are a bit like Israel. Israel heard these laws, they agreed that they were good, and then they repeatedly failed to keep them. As most of you know, it is actually quite difficult to love other people, especially when we have complicated relationships with them. I remember being totally offended by another Christian uh, many years ago, just after I had moved to Melbourne. Uh, This was a relationship that went from good to messy within minutes. Uh, This person had said something to me in front of others that just cut me to the heart. And even after there were words of apology uh, spoken, I was actually still really annoyed at this person. And I felt bitter towards him. You see, there was enough truth in what he had said to provide a bit of a sting, but enough misconception, misinformation to anger me. So for a good year, our relationship felt awkward, messy, and uncomfortable. 
I knew that God wanted me to love this guy, but I just simply didn't want to. But thankfully, all this happened during a time in my life where I was getting to know Jesus better through the Christian Union at La Trobe University. You see, my time in CU, where they taught the Bible to me, helped me understand what it meant to be a Christian. My time in CU helped me to see that I too was a sinner. I was someone who stuffs it up much of the time by saying and doing things that are loveless. I was someone who needed God's forgiveness, and Jesus provided that forgiveness through his own death for my sins and resurrection. And in coming to understand Jesus and his word better, I began to understand how I could trust God and live his way, even in messy relationships, like with this guy. Let me just share three final things that helped change my heart towards this person. Firstly, I came to see that through Jesus, God was committed to dealing with the sin behind our messy relationships. See, part of the reason we become vengeful and want to hurt um, others uh, is because we fear that these people will not answer for the way they've hurt us. So we try and take matters into our own hands. But both the Old Testament and the New Testament assures us that God is a God who sees all sin and judges all sin and nothing gets past him. And we see that at the end of our chapter in Deuteronomy chapter 5, don't we? In verses 13 to 16, God commands Israel not to be corrupt in their business dealings with each other. They've got to use accurate and honest weights, verse 15. But the Lord detests anyone who deals dishonestly. So we see there, God doesn't overlook the corruption in our hearts. Even among his own people, he detests it and will judge it. And we see a picture of God's judgment on sin in his command to Israel to blot out the name of the Amalekites in verses 17 to 19. Because these uh, people had no fear of God, they were willing to attack God's people when they were weak and worn out on their desert journey, verse 18. And twice Israel is told at the end of our chapter not to forget what they did, verse 17 and 19. Israel must not forget their sin because God doesn't forget sin. He sees sin, he remembers sin, he judges sin. And actually, that God judges sin should both warn us and encourage us. It should warn us that we can't keep living in rebellion to God. Verse 16 reminds us that he detests the corruption in our hearts, which we all have. We can't think that he doesn't see our loveless actions and our selfish hearts. He does see it. But he has sent his son Jesus to save us from the judgment we deserve. In trusting Jesus, we can find forgiveness for our sin, peace with God, and eternal life. But God's attitude towards sin should also encourage us too. When we find ourselves in messy relationships, hurt by what people have done to us, we can be confident that God sees the sin committed against us and will judge it. He will either judge it through the cross of Jesus as people turn to him in faith and repentance, or he will judge it at the last day when Jesus returns as king and judge. And you see, knowing that, 
We can actually commit ourselves to acting justly rather than vengefully, selflessly rather than selfishly. As Romans 12 says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, in my eyes, that Christian brother who had sinned against me, who I had that messy relationship with, he had sinned against me. That's what I thought. But God had dealt with that sin on the cross, just like he had dealt with my sin on the cross. Therefore, I didn't need to keep avenging myself in subtle and petty ways. But the second thing that helped to change, uh, helped me to change amidst this messy relationship was the fact that God promises us hope beyond the mess. See, Israel looked forward to the hope of life in the promised land. We see that in verse 16. But the promised land was still a place occupied by sinners. You just need to read the entire Old Testament and you'll come to that conclusion. You see, God had brought them into this new land, but they still had their old hearts and all the mess that goes with it in that land. Through faith in Jesus, we are assured of a greater dwelling place, the hope of eternal life with God in the new heavens and earth, a place totally free from sin and mess. It's wonderful that we can look forward to a day when our relationships with each other won't be tainted by envy or bitterness or hurt or violence or anger or covetousness. You might be finding some messy relationships particularly hard in your life. Perhaps it's a battle resisting being vengeful or selfish. Well, keep trusting God, keep living his way, because the relational mess, it may actually never completely leave us in this life. But God promises us a good hope beyond the mess in the next life. And lastly, I came to see that God sustains us through our messy relationships. See, it's tough battling through the awkwardness, the uncomfortable nature of some of our relationships. They can be emotionally and mentally exhausting. I'm sure you know of times when you've been unable to get to sleep because your mind is just churning these things over and over. But if you know Jesus, you actually don't have to do that battle alone. Jesus is a constant help to us with his indwelling spirit. He will give us the grace we need to endure through the mess and keep living his way. Um, my go-to verse has been always Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. It says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is able, unable to empathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us 
in our time of need. You see, the Son of God, Jesus, he became one of us. He experienced the struggles we experience. He felt the pain of messy relationships with his disciples. He didn't let them down, but they let him down. He was betrayed by them. He was abandoned by them. And he was actually crucified by the people he came to save. You see, Jesus gets what we are going through in the mess of our relationships. But he doesn't just get it. He actually also has the power to help us endure those messy relationships as we come to him in prayer and ask for that help. He will give us grace to help us in our time of need. And we're all very different here at the 5 p.m. service, different upbringings, different cultures, different interests. Uh, some of our relationships are bound to get messy from time to time. The question is not if that will happen among us, but when and what you will do when it does. Well, I think Deuteronomy 25 has maybe given us a way forward when that does happen. In those moments when relationships implode, when it gets messy, we are to think justice, not excessive vengeance. And we are to remain selfless, not selfish. And we can trust God in all of this, knowing that he will ultimately deal with any sin behind the mess. He gives us hope beyond the mess, and he sustains us through the mess. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus. Uh, thank you that he was willing to be selfless and love us. Thank you that he left the glories of heaven and humbled himself to death on a cross for our sake. Our Lord, the messiness of our relationships is a painful and uncomfortable thing. We pray, Father, we thank you, Father, that you ultimately do deal with sin. Nothing gets through the, through the keeper with you. We thank you that you give us and you promise us a better hope beyond the mess. And we pray that you would sustain us as we endure through that mess, living your way and trusting our Lord in Jesus' name. Amen.